Hello, and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. Welcome to episode 16. Why did the salmon swim upstream? This is part one of a two-part series on salmon. Part two discussed how GIS is being used to better prioritize fish passage barrier removal in the Wenatchee watershed. And that episode was actually released last month as episode 15, A Culvert Affair. So, you know, part two first and then part one. We're really good at math. Right. Isn't that how it goes? I think Two so. and then one? Right. Because we're like counting down right. to the best episode. Exactly. We'll have links in our show notes to last month's episode. This month, we're meeting up with Joy Waltermeyer at the Long Live the Kings Lilywap Conservation Facility to get more general background on salmon which we haven't really introduced yet. Joy has been working with Long Live the King since 2001 because child prodigy as a (laughs) steelhead biologist. Thanks for joining us today, Joy. Oh, thank you so much for letting me join you. Joy and I have actually known each other since 1999, speaking of childhood prodigies, Mm -hmm. when we attended the Evergreen State College as five-year-olds. We were (laughs) really advanced. That's right, exactly. That's the only way that math works out. I can honestly say the day I graduated from Evergreen State College, I was in cap and gown on the campus. A mutual friend came up to me and said, you want a job with Long Live the Kings? Our friend's coworker just quit. And I just flipped my tassel and received my diploma. I'm like, I got this. Peace. Thank you, Evergreen. I did not know that. No? That's the day of. Yeah. That is crazy. Wow. Granted, I had to, you know, interview and... And be validated. You didn't just get it like that. They were like, yes, we want her. Yes, you are in fact qualified. Not only are you so amazing, you actually are qualified. So that's a great segue. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, your deepest, darkest secrets? Well, I was born and raised in Connecticut, right outside of New Haven, on a horse farm, actually. So grew up tending animals and being out in nature my whole life. Moved out to Olympia in 1999, met some wonderful people, fell in love with the landscape, loved everything that the Olympic Mountains and Mount Rainier and Hood Canal and the Puget Sound had to offer and have never gone back. Had a great time at Evergreen State College and just fell in love with the Olympic Peninsula. What did you study when you were at Evergreen? Environmental science. I put a little bit of focus towards water sciences, but we did a fair amount of GIS and all different, you know, components of ecology, hydrology, geology. And really, I I came on to the Long Live the Kings team with no salmon education whatsoever. And so I was hired because the majority of my position is field work and I'm an avid backpacker and so comfortable in the backcountry. And so I've learned everything about salmon and steelhead on the job from my coworker, Rick Endicott, who has been with Long of the Kings since 1993, and also from the lead of the project I work on called the Hood Canal Steelhead Project from Dr. Barry Berejikian, who works for NOAA. So I've got sort of this local homegrown knowledge matched with that of the most upper science education. And, you know, so much of my job is in the field. And really, the education comes from observing what is actually happening. Right. It's been wonderful. I feel like I truly have scored the best job. I never thought I would 
be working here for more than a couple years. I thought I'd get into environmental education and outdoor ed, and I love the organization. I love the community. I love Hood Canal, and I love salmon. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have numerous species of salmon, one of which is a steelhead. A steelhead is technically a sea-run rainbow trout. So they have the ability to be born, rear in freshwater. They go out to the salt water to grow big and strong. They return back to the freshwater to spawn. But unlike all of the other salmon, steelhead do not die after they spawn. Really? Fascinating. We're going to learn a little bit here today. (laughs) This is the goal, right? And so it's very interesting to think of salmon that spends their whole life from the time they're born to survive, to make it back to spawn, to essentially keep their, their species alive. Well, steelhead have to face all of the same obstacles time and time again that the salmon have to face to survive and keep their species so surviving. So how many times can they reproduce then? Until they die. But I guess what's their average lifespan? Well, let's just say that that is a big unknown. There has been records of 10 to 12-year-old steelhead. That's amazing. So do steelhead typically come back every year then, or is that known? They do. I mean, that's the thought, is that at age two, when they're a smolt, they leave their river, the freshwater rearing habitat, and they swim out to the marine ecosystem. That's where there's a lot more food availability and prime conditions for growing. Then typically between age three, four, five, they return back to their natal river to spawn. And then so after they spawn, they will spend a little bit of time in the river sort of regaining their energy and strength. And then they swim back out to the saltwater marine environment to grow and get all their nutrients. And then their eggs regenerate or develop, I suppose, and they come back to the river and spawn indefinitely. Now, that being said, there's lots of obstacles that they have to face to continue to survive and spawn, that being human impacts such as fishing, harvest, nets, degraded habitat, whether it's on the near shore or in the marine environment, and then predators. The minute that they return to the river, they're predated upon by otters, eagles. In the marine environment, they have to make it past Whales and seals and sea lions. Bears. Bears, once they're in the freshwater. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. Good job. Evergreen education <laughs> shining through. It's really an amazing concept to think about all the obstacles that both salmon and steelhead face in their lifetime. And, you know, that's one reason why between half and 1% of the eggs that are laid is what makes it back to the river to spawn. Wow. Other species of salmon, they have different cycles, right? Where they come and spawn, like they don't come every year? Yeah. So the pink salmon, they're also known as humpies. They are on a every other year cycle. Typically here in the Northwest, that's odd years. The pinks will come back to the river to spawn in the fall. And then pretty much as soon as the fry emerge from the gravel, they are out of the river and utilizing that near shore marine habitat, which is why those estuaries are so important. And so a fry is the stage of life of salmon right as they emerge from the gravel where their parents have laid a nest and let the eggs incubate and and develop. And then they take some time and get themselves out to the open ocean and continue to feed and grow bigger 
and then return. Also, the pinks can be a little younger, but somewhere between two and three years. Um, and then the chum are closer to a four-year spawning fish. Then there's the coho and the chinook, and those typically will spend about a year in the river. And so this really highlights both for the coho, chinook, and steelhead the importance of healthy river habitat. And that doesn't just mean water, it means deep pools, it means logs and canopy for them to hide under, and it also means, you know, a benthic or the bug population that they rely so heavily upon. The actual spawning, the moment of magic, is an incredible phenomenon. Yes, the males have sperm and the females have eggs, which when they're ready to spawn are fertile and ready to be penetrated by that sperm. Whoa. Oh, yeah. That's pretty hot. However, let it be known that when the sperm actually does penetrate the egg, it's in a split second while the eggs are falling out of the female in through a current of moving water into the gravel where they will incubate. And it's really just that split second moment of the egg and the sperm touching, you know, even in whatever flow there is. That's actually totally incredible. I mean, like what? It is incredible. (laughs) So typically a salmon will lay between 2,000 to, depending on the species, like a Chinook salmon lays about 5,000 eggs. It's a lot of potential for survival. Yeah. Some of those eggs don't get fertilized. Some could be fertilized by multiple males. It's not that eyebrow raising, are they? Uh, polyamorous salmon. <laughs> That's right. But on the spawning grounds, the dominant male is typically the one who is with the female for that moment of, of fertilization. However, while the female, like you'll see in all walks of life, the female does most all of the work and the hard work. And so while she's digging the nest and figuring out where the best place to incubate the eggs are, the males, like males, are just fighting and carrying on and trying to to be the dominant, most powerful man as though... Jerkfish. That's right. (laughs) And no disrespect to all you men out there. We're just talking about fish here. But so the most dominant male typically is the one who will have the potential for the highest rate of fertilization. But in that moment where the female is just about to release her egg, the male is so focused on this process that a sneaker male can actually get into her area and... Surprise. Mm -hmm. Surprise sperm. That's right. In that split second, multiple males can actually fertilize one female's batch of eggs. So steelhead spawn in typically the winter. There are summer run steelhead, but here on Hood Canal, the majority of the steelhead that are spawning are winter spawners. So that means that they're entering the river and spawning between late January and early July. The other salmon all spawn in the fall time. So you have your summer chum, early chinook, the humpies come in a little later, then the fall chum and the coho and the fall chinook. And so all of that occurs really between like August and really like early December, depending on the runs. There are still some Christmas run coho who spawn, like their name, sometime around Christmas into early February even. But for the most part, when the steelhead are in the river, they're the only species of salmon spawning. Hmm. What role do salmon play in the Salish Sea or Puget Sound ecosystem? They're a huge piece of this area and the culture here. 
just recently I heard somebody say the salmon are like the blood of the Puget Sound and the Salish Sea. And I really liked that visual of the blood because without it pulsing through Puget Sound's veins, we'd have nothing. We'd be dead. So we're not going to make it out alive is what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing too. Not if the salmon disappear. We're doomed. The salmon are born and raised in the rivers, go out to the marine environment, and when they come back, they're bringing so many nutrients back to the rivers. Not just the rivers, because you think for most of the salmon, when they spawn, they're going to die, and essentially their decaying bodies are their baby's first food, right? That's like the... Whoa, that's a little morbid. I know. Cannibal. Like, baby. mother, you taste so delicious. Mm. Mm. But at the same time, those returning fish who die after spawning are feeding the birds. They're feeding the bears. The bears will carry the fish up into the forest. They're feeding the forest. So really, it's much more than just the fish. I mean, the whole entire ecosystem benefits from fish coming back. And when you think about predators, you know, how many... And I, you know, I say predators, but I mean, are orcas predators? Yes, they are. But they're also another piece of our Salish Sea and Puget Sound that that is a a reminder and a testament of place and, and what makes this place so healthy. So they're essential to keep the whole system going. Turbidities, does that have a big impact on the salmon while they're growing in the rivers, though? Not so much because those turbid events tend to be really flashy. Yeah especially in these systems in Hood Canal that are pretty short and steep. Yep. And are the old locking practices and all of the gravel and rocks and sediment that's coming down the river, is that one thing that's clogging up culverts? Or were the culverts that are put in just insufficient in the first place? I'm sure it's some combination of both, but ultimately I don't think the effects of the historic logging practices really became as dramatic as we're seeing now because you had the hillside somewhat held together by these old growth stumps. Well, now the stumps are rotting and they're losing whatever ability they had to hold the hillside together. And certainly in thinking about that, the culverts were originally placed with a different expectation of what the environment was delivering. So, Well, and, and really what their purpose was. It was to get equipment across these waterways to get the logs out. It wasn't yep. thinking about the downhill <laughs> effects <laughs> right. of what they're doing in this moment, or the fish exactly trying to get up these mm-hmm. systems. Yeah. But that being said, now it's known. It's a known issue, and it is being addressed, and logging practices have changed. Road building practices have changed. Certainly, the the size requirement for culverts on different size systems has changed. And so we are, as humans, adapting to time. Um, I think when you talk about salmon and the restoration and the habitat integrity, we maybe don't have the 100 to 300 years that some of these projects require to sort of return a system to what it naturally was without, you know, having really adverse effects to the wild populations. That being said, there's lots of benefits that a conservation hatchery can provide to these changing systems, especially when we look towards climate change and effects that we're not even really sure of yet that what that's going right. to do over time. You know, what do we do when it's 70 degrees in the Pacific Northwest in April. And what do we do when all of the snow is melted by May? Right. We don't know what it's, it could benefit the population short term because more insects can grow. So there's more food. 
But what if we get to a point where the drought... We have no water in the summer. That's right. Because it all goes subsurface. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that. Right. Thankfully... I mean, in, yeah, in 2015, that was a pretty bad year. Certainly the Dungeness went under. And completely. The Columbia had lots of hot water, which very hot. Uh, killed fish, but for other, you know, just because the water was so hot. And yeah, fish need that connectivity. They need shade. They require cool water. You know, and that's one thing we were really lucky with the summer of 2019 here in the Hood Canal watershed was we got rain in July. We really didn't have the issue with fires. We're just like crickets for wildfires this mm-hmm. year. We'll take it. We'll yeah, take right? it because <laughs> in May. I like breathing yeah. and stuff. That's yeah. cool. I mean, I don't really want to get rain in the summer because I love our summer. I know. Summers, it's but... like the hard part, right? It's like, it's like, well, if you only got out in May, you, June, you would have had a great right? summer season. Yeah. Who would win in a fight? A trash panda or a farmed salmon? Oh, what's a trash panda? I've got to go with a a farmed salmon. And why? I really don't think salmon are, and I'm speaking from a, a very biased picture of a farmed salmon here. Because you only have the best. We only have the best, right? right? Low numbers. In this conservation facility, we're able to keep really low number, high quality, fit fish. So I'm still going to go with my bias and say a fish will always win because they're so badass. I mean, look what they do in their life. They navigate through so many obstacles. It's not like they're just scavenging off of a garbage can. I mean, look at them. They are foraging. They are finding their way out and through all the obstacles and then home again. And ultimately, they're successful. So I'm going to go with a farmed, farmed salmon. I like that. All right. Maybe I should have known what a trash panda was. I should have been like in the, after I got the questions, what's a trash panda? I knew exactly. Charades helped a lot. That was great. Why did the salmon cross the road? Because it was flooding and the culvert was plugged. Or as like we like say, to, to get, get to, to the Skokomish farm field and die, and their babies will never make it back to the river because the water recedes. So sad. I don't know if I should like pee my pants right now or cry. That was beautiful. So long live the kings. Do they work specifically with steelhead or do they work with other salmon restoration conservation as well? Long live the kings is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to restore wild salmon and steelhead to the Pacific Northwest waters. A tiny goal. This small. Yeah. We are a 12 person organization founded in the late 80s. Here at Lilywap, this conservation facility was built and in operation by 1993. And we're working primarily here on Hood Canal with listed species of salmon and steelhead. We do have a facility up on Orcas Island that is more of a terminal fish hatchery. And so essentially the thought was to contribute Chinook salmon to the Salish Sea and areas around Orcas Island to, one, take pressure off of the wild runs of salmon because there is harvest that occurs up there. But also, and ultimately over time, the importance has shown through to feed the orcas. Mm-hmm. I should say one thing we found in our work here in Hood Canal is um, at the Hood Canal Floating Bridge, we've been implanting juvenile steelhead, so two-year-old steelhead, as they're leaving the rivers with these acoustic tags. They're small tags, actually like a full size of like a jelly bean. 
and we surgically implant them into the belly of these six to nine inch fish as they're leaving the rivers and put receivers out through both Hood Canal and Puget Sound and can track their movement, but also their survival. We have both participated in the Survive the Sound. We had a Hood Canal fish, and it's so fascinating. Did it make it? No. Because it's so sad, right? Because the Hood Canal floating bridge. And it's like these fish, they get out of the river, they get going way faster than those stupid Nisqually fish. Those Nisqually fish, they take forever getting out of the river. (laughs) But the Skokomish ones, they're like zip right out into Hood Canal, and then they're like zip, zip up to the bridge. And then they like turn around and like swim in circles and don't make it underneath the stupid bridge. Well, the stupid- get eaten the stupid bridge which is a great piece of transportation it's a great tool for transportation here in the area but it floats about 30 feet into the water column well unfortunately for steelhead they migrate out in that upper 20 feet of water so they're essentially coming and hitting a wall and the openings of the bridge are on either shoreline and so using this technology we've been able to see the pattern when they hit the bridge they kind of swim back and forth along the bridge not all the way to the openings and then essentially turn around and you know start backtracking they'll hit another point and then turn around and make it back to the bridge where seals and other predators just are waiting with open mouths. I had one he like went back into Quilcene Bay and then back down to Hoodsport and then back up to the bridge and then yeah I got eaten at the bridge. Which is amazing that they're surviving all that swimming. They're fit enough. There's really no other points of predation but at the bridge we're seeing a close to a 50% mortality. And is that specific to steelhead? Steelhead, Steelhead? specifically. Yeah, we haven't actually done any tagging with Chinook. I think, you know, looking forward, that would be great. But when we got the original funding for the Hood Canal Bridge Assessment Project, we were really just wanting to identify, is there a point of mortality at the bridge? That has been identified. We went into that assessment with legislative funds, and it was communicated very clearly that No matter what we find, we're not going to replace the bridge. And so right now we're brainstorming and looking for other tools that we can utilize and implement to aid the fish into those openings or potentially deter seals from just parking there. there. Yeah. What we found on the Nisqually is it's an even higher rate of mortality. And it's just there's an incredible amount of seals and sea lions at the mouth of the Nisqually and in that part of Puget Sound. And really what we need are are orcas to come back. And it's only the transient orcas that eat seals and sea lions. And there is a correlation, certainly, in having some kind of predator control. Right. I'm not really funny. Oh, it's cool. We're funny. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's staying in. (laughs) Leave it to the professionals of hilarity (laughs) to keep the giggles coming. The Survive the Sound is a great way to visually become educated in a very fun way. I mean, we have these data points that are live data that we've tracked through the years, and we've created these, what do we call these characters, these avatars? Is that the hip word? Each data point in this game that we've created online is represented by a little character, and they're really witty and cute and funny, and we have a great artist that has helped us develop this, and there's little stories that go with it. But ultimately, you choose a fish, and you, in choosing, can can determine which stock you want. Do you want one from the Nisqually or the Hood Canal? You get a very 
brief indication of, of what the fish is like, with that being just a length and a weight. And you can track this fish when the race starts every day. And it's so much fun. And it's so fun. much fun. And competitive, because we like to do yeah. competitive things. So we had competitive fish. Mine got much farther than hers, but ultimately died. Accurate. I love it. And I have to say, going into it blind, because we don't know which fish survive going into the game. I've picked winners both times. Wow. <laughs> so I feel like I'm kind of uh, lucky. I don't think that's going to happen all the time. But I've, you know, one really great thing, this game has has grown exponentially over the couple of years that we've done it. In fact, this past year, it reached like 300 plus thousand students. Wow. We got a great grant from the Gates Foundation. Um, and so it's it was in schools and then it became, you know, funded for any adult even to play for free. I know. I was kind of sad. I was like... You can actually just do it without paying. Well, let it be known, donations are always grateful. We still donated (laughs) because that's how we had been taught in the first couple of years. But I do think it's great that it's opened up and that it is very accessible to people now, even though I felt special before because I was like the only one who could see my top secret information. But... That's funny. But it's educating people around the countries. The sign up is March and April, and then it begins in May. Um, and it kind of, mi- I mean, it's supposed to mimic that the time when we were actually out tagging the fish. But, you know, we have had the support of the public and these other grants now, but our board, who is like the most wonderful board as far as supporting our work and our mission, and they really encourage this this game. So even though it wasn't a moneymaker that first year, it became such a piece of outreach and education that it was just the value is there's no return on the value. This I is- mean, we both worked for Mason County for a number of years. So, you know, we knew Hood Canal Bridge existed and Hood Canal and fish and stuff. But like just visually being able to see those fish run around in there and go, it, yeah. it, it's so educational. It really, I mean, it's just like, oh, this bridge has a huge impact and it's really irritating because my fish isn't winning. Exactly. It was oh. so eye-opening. They're like fish aren't winning though for real either. I, I mean, <laughs> right. Yes, that's what I meant too. <laughs> Because you don't get your $5 bet either, exactly, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I have a question that might be really stupid. No. There are no stupid questions, That's Jen. Right. Only stupid, stupid people. people. Yep. So your organization is called Long Live the Kings, but I haven't heard you talk about king salmon. I've heard the term king salmon. Is that another term for steelhead? No, kings is the uh, the nickname for the Chinook salmon. Oh, okay. So those are the largest salmon in size. In egg production, all of it. The original project that was started up on Orcas Island worked with Chinook. It's raining. Yeah. It's been raining since we got here. Did you uh-huh. just notice this now? <laughs> no, I mean, it's like it's still, it's really raining. Do you have anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is worth sharing with our audience? I would just like everyone to have the assurance that each of us really makes a difference and so when it comes to our environment especially the waterways of hood canal puget sound our salish seas i mean we need passion we need hearts we need people's connection with place and throughout generations and so whatever way you connect to keep the health and vitality of this area alive and vibrant go for it. It makes a big difference, whether it's writing letters, whether it's just walking the rivers, taking a deep breath, 
going there for meditation. I mean, we are blessed to live where we are. And thankfully, it's a time when there are fish in the rivers and we need to maintain that so that my kids, your kids, grandkids, we can always have it here. I just think we all have to be mindful of our practices and it's great to eat fish and harvest fish and be able to go fishing, but you know, there's a lot that we can do on the small level. I think encouraging policy that supports healthy wild river systems, looking towards dams and dam removal, and then, you know, really also how hatcheries are used and, and making sure that we use those tools to the best of the salmon's well-being. But, you know, ultimately it is a huge economic piece of this area. I mean, how many times in history has our economic drive just destroyed the resource that led to such quick gain? N never. <laughs> yeah. I don't, humans don't do that, do we? Yeah, no. Never. We're, we're all about looking to the future and like planning. <laughs> but how we can really not just learn from the past, but move forward with a different idea that it's a very fragile time and we don't have... We, there's a lot of unknowns moving forward. And I have children... You know, they've been out with me since they were born, and I would love for them to be able to always connect to not only place or the season, but to their own heart through the seasons of the salmon and steelhead. Well, I think you actually pretty starkly pointed out earlier that if the salmon are gone, none of us make it out alive. Bum, bum, bum. Were you going to ask that question or just answer it for her? Will we make it out alive? Yes. Hmm. That's a weird response. Right? Well, what can I say? I'm an optimist. <laughs> Some might call me a hippie. I just say I'm an optimist. I'm full of love and hope. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Joy. We've learned quite a bit about fish. Jen didn't know anything before today, so I, I everything mean, you said was basically new to her. I knew some stuff. I didn't know that king equals Chinook. Now I do. Now you do. I feel like... You learned something. I, I totally learned something. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming. And thank you for being our first in-person guest. That's very Woo. exciting. Hopefully our sound is a little bit better than last episode when we did our long distance guest. Mm -hmm. We'll keep spreading the knowledge and, you know, delving into topics that I'm sure everybody's interested in, especially if they're listening. They're probably very interested in it. Better be. I think they just come from my voice. I, it is so <laughs> sexy. So there you have it. The end of episode 16. Why did the salmon swim upstream? We hope you have laughed and learned and that once again we have inspired you to make it out alive. <laughs> we did our first in-person episode and we learned a lot about salmon today that we previously had no idea about even really stupid stuff but there are no stupid questions as we already discussed only stupid people jen why would you say that about yourself <laughs> <laughs> please join us for our next episode coming out in january we're not really sure what kind of fun the new year will bring for us and please don't forget to rate review and subscribe on you know apple podcast stitcher Tune in, Castbox, Himalaya, iHeartRadio. So many. I mean, so many. Like wherever you're listening to this, please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or at facebook.com/slash. Will we make it out alive? If you're more visually inclined, check out our YouTube page. Until next time. Will we make it out alive?
Signing off, Amy the Poop Detective. And Jen, the magical mapper. She's so magical. So magical. And please, please, please give us a review. We don't have any reviews. Give us a review. Please. We don't want to beg, but we are right now. But only you can hear us. So please, (laughs) listen to us now. Review. And rate. And subscribe. No one loves us. (laughs) We want to be loved. Give us love for the holidays.